This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Ezra Freck was born with congenital limb differences, missing his left knee, left shin bone, and fingers on his left hand. Now 15 years old, Ezra has used a prosthetic leg since he was 11 months and a running blade since he was four years old. Ezra is an accomplished athlete and a sought-after motivational speaker. He has received many awards and honors over the years, including the Rising Star Award from the Challenge Athletes Foundation in 2009, and he was named a finalist for the 2014 Sports Illustrated Sports Kid of the Year. In 2019, Ezra made the U.S. Paralympic track and field team as the youngest athlete on the team at 14 years old. He competed in three international events, including the Junior World Para-Para Athletics Championship, where he won three medals, and the Para-Pan American Games, where he won two silver medals, the World Para Athletics Championship, where he placed in the top eight in all three of his events, and he was the youngest athlete out of 1,400 competitors. He's slated to compete for Team USA in the upcoming 2021 Tokyo Paralympic Games. He is the inspiration behind and the co-founder of Angel City Sports, a high-growth, high-impact nonprofit organization dedicated to providing the joy of sports to children and adults with physical disabilities. Ezra also supports a number of other charitable organizations, including the Challenge Athletes Foundation, Shriners Hospital for Children, Mobility Outreach International, Camp No Limits, and Free the Children. Ezra has been featured on dozens of radio and network television shows, including The Ellen DeGeneres Show and Good Morning America, sharing his story and raising awareness and understanding for the physically challenged. Since he was four years old, Ezra has done motivational speaking at schools, hospitals, companies, and leadership conferences, bringing his message that being different is okay. Ezra's motto is, you can dream it, you can hope for it, or you can make it happen. And he believes that you should focus on what you have versus what you don't have. Hi, Ezra. Hi, thank you for having me today. Thank you for being here. Ezra, especially in rooms full of other academics who are in general not known, sadly, for our athleticism, I'm usually confident that I'm the most in shape person in the room or in the virtual room, but I've been watching videos of you in action. I think today I'm fairly certain that I'm not. What does a daily workout look like for you? Yeah, that's that's really funny that you say that. that but yeah, it's, it's a daily workout for me basically consists of, you know, I get up in the morning pretty early before school, before online school, which I have to say is not much of a hoot, but I get up in the morning and I'll do some stretch, do some yoga, do some yoga around my house uh, with my mom maybe. And then I go to online school for the entire day. And then after school, I have a track practice with my high school track team, which is about a two to three hour workout, depending on the day. And then I'll come home, recover, do more homework and, you know, take an ice bath, whatever I want you to do and go to bed. So it probably consists of between two to four hours of of training a day. And sometimes if I get a little antsy sitting in my room, I'll just work out even more because I feel like it and I I love working out. So (laughs) what do you love about it? It's very freeing for me. We're sitting in our houses all day and I get really antsy. I don't feel like myself when I don't work out. 
So if I'm sitting on a computer screen for so long, if I'm bored in class and I can't focus and I'm just jittery from sitting down so much, I will I will work out, which is not a go-to reaction for very many kids. But for me, <laughs> I, I love to train, I love to work out. So I would, I work out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think that later, much later on in my life, after even I became an academic, I discovered that what I am is actually a kinetic learner. I learn by touching or I learn while moving. So if I need to read an article or a book, I'll actually sit on my spin bike or I'll do planks and I'll read at the same time. It seems to help my my brain link up with my body and the series of dynamic interactions between brain and body actually for me is really productive. I think the kinds of thoughts that I think are more playful or more interesting when I'm moving than the thoughts that I have when I'm sitting down and kind of just static reading. Do you have any of that kind of experience? Am I alone in this? That is really interesting. I have never tried that. I have never ever tried like working out or doing something physical while also studying. I did just this weekend try chewing a certain flavor of gum while I was studying in hopes that if you know when you chew that flavor of gum when you take the assessment that it reminds your brain of the material that you had studied prior. So I tried that, but I've not tried any physical, like a workout or something kinetic to help me study. That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. I actually have gotten into audiobooks and now I listen to audiobooks while I'm working out as well. It's a way to help me remember things. It's interesting. I wonder if this tells us something about the link between mind and body and the way our bodies move in space and its relationship to the way that the mind works. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely interesting how you know your brain is able to process certain information like that, especially for you when you're moving or being active. I think there's some truth to that for me specifically because I have my deepest thoughts. I you know, I have my, my motivational thoughts and those deep thinking moments when I'm working out, when I'm fatigued, when I'm tired, when I'm doing something active. So I think there's some truth to that for me as well. But that's super interesting that you actually like process information better when you're doing something active. I might try that maybe for this next this next chemistry quiz I have. Are you training for anything right now? Yes, currently I'm training for the Tokyo Paralympic Games this summer. So hopefully all will go well and I'll be able to compete there this summer. Okay, so I have to ask a bunch of questions about this. What specifically are you training for? And second question, is your family going to be able to go with you this year with everything that's going on with COVID? And what has it been like training for a event of that kind of size and magnitude during a COVID context? Yeah, for sure. It's first off, I for the for the viewers, and the people listening, I, I compete in track and field. So I do three events. I do the long jump, the high jump, and the 100 meter. And I hopefully will be competing in Tokyo this summer. But as far as my family being able to go, you know, we just heard the news that they're going to be banning foreign spectators from entering the country during that time. So as of right now, it looks like my family won't be able to come and I'll be sent off to Japan by myself, which is a big bummer. And we're super devastated about it. Who knows what will happen, you know, later on. And maybe, you know, God willing, COVID gets you know, a lot better and you know maybe they maybe they change their mind on the decision or something like that of, of that nature but as of right now it looks like my family won't be able to attend the paralympic games while i'm competing as far as training during a pandemic it's honestly been pretty wild because for a while i didn't even have a place to train my coach and i were at parks we were at beaches we were you know running up and down my street you know by my school would open then my school would close again and then we'd go back to the park and go back to the beach. We didn't have a weight room. We didn't have anywhere to train. We were just sort of going with the flow and going wherever we found a spot to run at. So it was definitely a crazy almost year before we were even able to get back onto a track on a consistent and regular basis. 
So I think the biggest issue for us was just finding a place to train. And on one hand, it's difficult because you're, you don't really have the facilities and the same access that we did before the pandemic. But on the other hand, it sort of allowed me to maintain this sort of focus on one thing without lots of moving parts going on in my life. I'm not worried about the social life. I'm not worried about all this other stuff that would, that I would be worried about normally during, you know, regular time when you're at school and you're hanging out with your friends all the time and you're doing all this stuff. Being in the house all day has, has sort of allowed me to like single my focus in on, on the one thing that I want to do. And so in many ways, like the pandemic has sucked, but in other ways, it's also benefited me a lot. And as I understand it, listening to a bit of your story and hearing you talk in other contexts, you have loved uh, sports and have had an amazing athletic career that started very early for you. Uh, I've heard you say in those interviews that you live and breathe basketball, among other sports. What do you love about them? I think the thing that I love most about sports, similar to what we were talking about earlier, is sports is an escape for me, right? It's somewhere where I can go where I sort of, you know, forget the problems of the real world or the stuff that goes on within my life. And I think for people with physical disabilities, you know, having having a physical disability is not easy, right? Everywhere you go, you're stared at, you know, people are pointing fingers, whispering. And when I was younger, people would underestimate me a lot and, you know, talk behind my back, make fun of me, stuff like that. And when I would step onto the basketball court, all of that sort of talk and all that sort of stuff going on around my disability, even within my own mind, would just melt away. It's almost like stepping into a place where I'm not treated as the kid with one leg. I'm just treated as the shooting guard on the basketball team or, you know, the midfielder on the soccer field. So it's it sports allowed me to sort of escape from, you know, whatever was going on throughout the day, people underestimating me, staring, pointing fingers. And then I just grew a love, a, a love for being competitive. And whether that was basketball growing up, because basketball is my favorite sport, and then now transitioned into track and field, which is now my favorite sport, and sort of the sport that I've taken the more serious approach to, whatever it is, I, I love competing, I love being active. And so that's definitely where it stemmed from, just sort of being able to escape. What do you love about the competition and what is it about sports that allows for that kind of escape? I've always been a really physical, really active kid. And sports is one of the, the few things where when you're playing a sport, when you're doing something physical, especially something that requires a lot of attention and focus, very rarely are you worried about external factors and other things going on. You almost have a task, you have a job to do. And when I'm playing a sport, I'm not thinking about the fact that everyone's staring at me because I'm so focused on the game. And on top of that, it also sort of allowed me to identify myself as something other than a kid with disability, right? I was the athlete. I was, sports was like, sport, and my, an athlete was how, what I identified as. I wasn't just this kid with disability. When I stepped onto the court and I stepped onto the track, I sort of, I became the athlete. I became Ezra, you know, the competitor who, who wants to win at all costs. And so on top of that, for me growing up, I mean, sports is almost like a way into, you know, finding a group of kids and friends who I was able to relate with because I was sort of the outsider. I was sort of the, the kid that was sort of looked like awkwardly upon. But then once I started playing sports and these kids realized that I'm just like any average kid, that's I was able to find good friends. And I was able I think it's I think it has to do with being, you know, focusing on one thing and not being concerned about external factors that allows for that escape that I was able to have when I was young. On and off of the field, you have become a very prominent disability rights advocate in addition to a, a competitive athlete. Can you share a bit of your story? For sure. Basically, I was born, I had one finger on my left hand. And I had a lower left leg that was curved in towards my waist. And at two and a half years old, I had a surgery and the doctors removed the curved part of my left leg and they transplanted the big toe 
from the left foot that was curved in and put it onto my left hand. So now at two and a half years old, I had, I had two fingers on my left hand. I could pick things up. I could hold things, right? Because with one finger, everything I was holding as a little kid, my toys was held up against my, my body because I couldn't grasp it within the hand. And so then I got a second finger and I could hold my toys. I could hold things. It, you know, totally improved my hand functionality. And then as far as, you know, having a prosthetic leg, I went from having a leg that was curved up towards my waist, a little bit uncomfortable, difficult to, to fit the prosthetic leg around to a stump that was super easy to fit into a prosthetic leg. I was able to walk. I was able to be more of an active kid now that I had had this surgery. And ever since, ever since I was a little kid, people with physical disabilities know, like I said earlier, it's difficult to have, it's difficult to be different. It's difficult to be that outsider, that outcast in a sense. And so one of the big things, you know, one of the reasons I'm such a big disability rights advocate is, you know, because I think that someone shouldn't be judged off of their disability and off of their physical appearance in the same way that people shouldn't be judged off their race, off their ethnicity, off their, you know, all that, all that sort of stuff. And so I truly feel that people with physical disabilities are extremely underestimated in society and, and seen as less than the able-bodied athlete. And one of my biggest goals, whether that be through my athletic endeavors or whether that be through, you know, my speaking or my disability rights advocation is to show people that someone with a physical disability can do anything an able-bodied person can do, if not in some cases better, and sure there's limitations, but yeah, but there's many ways, you know, where people with disabilities thrive. And so I think at the end of the day, it's all about creating equality because I feel whether it's race, ethnicity, gender, you know, sexual orientation, or disability. And disability is a lot of times, you know, left out of the equation, but one of my main focuses is to bring it back and, you know, let every know everyone know that difference okay we're all different in our own way i just i'm just missing my leg you know when you advocate for disability what kind of challenges do you come up against i wouldn't say there are specific challenges that i come up against as i'm advocating specifically but as a whole people with disabilities are somewhat overlooked in society and people don't realize how difficult it is when you're the center of attention all the time, but you're not looked at as equal of someone with two legs. For example, when I was a little kid growing up and I would play basketball games like in my rec league or on my club team, kids on the other team would take it, like they wouldn't play defense on me. They would take it easy on me. They would, oh, like, oh, they, they would let me shoot and they'd be like, oh, yay. And I would get these pity applause and these pity claps and it pissed me off. Cause I was like, dude, like I'm here, I'm here to play. Like just look past the disability the same way you would look past someone if they had green hair, you look the way you would look past, right? Some someone's the color of someone's hair or someone's ethnicity, someone's race doesn't determine, right? The way you should think about them. Same thing with the physical disability. Yeah, sure. I can't do certain things in the way that looks, you know, acceptable and looks quote unquote normal. But there's many things that I can do, you know, just as well. So as a little kid, so I used to get really upset about stuff like that. And granted, now it's just people and, and in society where, where that happens, I know it's not obviously with a, they're not, they don't have a bad intention. They're not trying to upset me or trying to hurt my feelings. In fact, they're trying to avoid any sort of bad altercation or, or, you know, bad miscommunication. But at the end of the day, treating everyone equal, like one of the biggest gifts my parents gave me is they treated me just like a normal kid, right? They put me in regular sports. They didn't, they weren't changing anything because of my disability. I was just a normal kid to them. And so I think with one of the, one of the challenges is just like, people feel sorry for me all the time. And I get this all the time where kids come up to me and like, I'm so sorry for you, man. I hope your leg feels better. And I'm like, dude, my leg's fine. I don't feel, I'm fine. Like, I don't feel sorry for me. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, there's a lot of like little roadblocks like that, but it's just, you know, the public sentiment at that, 
that it's got to at the end of the day. A while ago, I had the disability activist George Estreich on the podcast, and we talked at length about the phrase that he finds as essential to understanding the disability community, which is nothing about us without us. Have you heard of that phrase? And if so, what, what does that mean for you? I haven't specifically heard of that phrase, but I'm assuming it means, you know, don't talk or don't do something or talk about us without us. Um, similar to how, you know, people with physical disabilities are stared at in public a lot. People are whispering, pointing fingers, talking behind the back. Am I hitting that the nail on the head or does it have a completely different meaning? No, that's spot on. But it's also about representation. It's also about questions of who makes decisions, for example, um, about policies that have to do with disability. I think the phrase makes a, a, a specifically not only social, but political commentary about what it means to be represented by policies, social constructions that affect you. That's yeah, that, that completely makes sense. I feel like there's a lot of that in today's climate, whether that be with disability, with other parts of politics and, and other socioeconomic issues. But I do think that it's difficult to truly understand what it's like to have a physical disability. And so policies and rules being made and, and people having their own opinion and, and talking about certain things, it's truly difficult if you aren't in that position. No one with two legs will ever understand what it's like to have one leg. So I completely agree with that statement. How would they have the right to make a decision that would affect me personally or affect me because of my disability? So I, I completely agree with that. I think it's it's definitely, it's tricky because, you know, I will never understand what it's like to have two legs and someone with two legs can never understand what it's like to have a physical disability. And they can try at the end of the day, but it's, it's not the same because it's such a complex and, and uh, such a complex issue at the end of the day. In the context of your advocacy, are there specific policies that you would be interested in seeing changed or are there things that you would want to advocate for specifically? on a legislative or political level? Um, there aren't too much that I can think of right now that I would want to you know, change on a political level or a legislative level. But as far as my advocacy goes, my main thing is I just want to educate the general public because people truly don't understand the Paralympic movement. People truly don't understand what a physical disability is. A lot of people think can get confused and think that I have a cognitive disability as well and think that the Paralympics is the same as the Special Olympics when they're two completely separate organizations with two completely separate motives. One's helping you know people with cognitive disabilities and one's helping people with physical disabilities. And sure, there's an occasional overlap, but I think the gen the, my my main advocacy work, my goal is just to educate the general public and, and show people that you know someone with a physical disability is equally as capable as someone you know who has all of their limbs at the end of the day, whether it be in you know the same normal fashion, but at the end of the day, you know, we're all equal as human beings. So let's talk a little bit about some of that work specifically. Your family famously founded Angel City Sports and you belong to an elite group of athletes who participate in the American Paralympic Games, as you talked about, which are now taking you to Tokyo. Um, sports are a major part of American culture broadly. But there's a particular significance, I think, that I'm hearing you talk about within the physical disability community. Is there a special kind of or particular kind of significance of athletics or sports for that community for you in your view? I think 110% there is because sports is not only physical, sports is sports is mental and it impacts people in ways that are beyond belief. There's a Nelson Mandela quote. I, I forget the exact word, just talking about how sports has has the ability to unite and speak to everyone and speak to the youth in a language they understand. And it has this broad connection between everyone 
And sports, honestly, at the end of the day, it can pull people out of really dark periods in their life. I mean, between me and my family, we've met people who have gone through really after an accident, maybe they got paralyzed, maybe they lost their leg, went through really dark periods. And the way they you know, were pulled out of that was through sport, through finding a community through sport. And so with our organization, it's, it's honestly bigger than just sport. Yes, we provide clinics, we provide sports equipment and competition and training, but you know, we're really you know, impacting these lives and providing a community for people who feel alone a lot of the time. You know, if someone has a physical disability and may not have the same support that I'm grateful to have with my family and my friends who, who love me and, and care for me no matter what, but there's people with physical disabilities who don't have that luxury to, to be able to access an amazing support system like I have. And so providing a community for these athletes, providing a community for these adults, for these kids, for these veterans, where they can go and they can see other people like them and realize that they're not alone, right? And they're part of this, this bigger community is something that I think is super important. And sports is the way that we do it. Sports is the way that we bring everyone together. And on top of that, it's super fun. It's so fun to go out there and compete, do things you didn't think were possible. We've had guys who didn't even know that they could ever run again, get out, give them a running blade, run on the track, see the smile on their face. It's just, that's what sports does. It brings people together and it unites people in a way that little else does, honestly. Is there, I want to switch gears a little bit because this is a podcast on humanistic technology. I've seen you talk about, and I think the term is that you used is your old legs that you used when you were really young and the legs that you use now to run. Do you remember getting the leg that you use now to run? What what were some of those shifts like between kind of the old legs and the new legs? It's a pretty crazy shift, honestly, because when I was when I was about four years old is when I got my first running leg or my first running blade. And you went from walking on this sort of stiff brick like substance, right, that you plant on to walk to now you get this spring that is able to return some of the energy that you put down into the ground. We had to, we had to park with one of our one of the people who I who mentors me and I ran for the first time and it was it, and then from there I was hooked. I was hooked on running. I was hooked on this blade. I was hooked on this adventure. And you know, fast forward 11 years, I'm 15 years old trying to go to the Paralympic Games and and win medals for our country and we're still making adjustments. Today, literally earlier before this podcast, we went to the prosthesis clinic and we made some pretty crazy adjustments that are playing a really huge role and now I'm going to go to the track later right after this and test it out and see how it feels. And so we continue to make adjustments, we continue to change things. There's more to learn, there's more to grow. And so that was really it's funny you bring that up because we were literally just at the prosthetist and then now I'm going to go try out this these adjustments that we made and see how they feel later. So we're always improving, always learning. What did you adjust? What did you change? We basically adjusted the focal point and my center of gravity coming down from my hip in order to create maximum compression within the blade, allowing me for the most energy return forward versus when my center of gravity was more back, the blade was more stiff and didn't return as much of the energy. So we just adjusted, we adjusted my center of gravity, moved the parts back played around with the tread on the bottom a little bit and then called it a day. But I did miss a few classes for it, online classes. So I was happy about that. <laughs> I'm sure that's, that's the best part, right? You get to miss the, the classes. Can you feel the difference with these adjustments? Yeah, overnight. Like the second I, we, we jogged around in the parking lot a little bit, I put it on. I was like, yep. I was like, this is it. Like we did this right. Like this is, this is how it should feel. Has the technology changed over the years? 
If so, how? The technology has changed a lot over the years. I think there's there's new blades and there's new knees and there's all these new te- pieces of technology that are more beneficial. And there's always the, the guy that's on the better blade and you're trying to figure out what blade he's on. And then the other person's on this knee and you're like, oh, what knee is that? And like, you know, so there's there's always there's always improvements within the blade and within the technology. I wouldn't say since I've been on a running blade, there has been a massive, like it wasn't like there was one blade that was like a rock and the next one was like this crazy, like amazing technology blade. I think there's been improvements and you know, they're slow and they're over time and there's more learning to do. And sometimes there's a jump, there's this new knee that came out that's a big deal. And But right now, all of the top guys, all the top Paralympians are on very similar blades and very similar knees. But on the top of that, there is so much room for improvement. And it's so difficult to figure this out. It's so difficult. It's almost like it's almost like you can't the person athlete can't be optimized unless the blade, unless the knee, unless the alignment with the socket, unless the center of gravity and the angle of blade within the tread hitting the guy, unless all of that is optimized, the athlete won't be optimized. And so it's this really cool combination of athlete and technology and the athlete connection with the technology. It's absolutely brilliant and, and fascinating to look at and watch happen and then put it on me and have to react. So it's it's crazy, but there the technology is definitely improving. I mean, it's only going to keep improving. Hopefully by like 2050 or something, you know, I can like fly to the grocery store. I'm going to ask you about that in a second, but I, I'm very curious that you've just been describing this. Do you have any contact with the people who are creating the technology? Is there a conversation? Do they come from the experience of disability? Is there a broader discourse around that? Or- There's a few people who I know who make the knee or make like a, or help make the blade or who are high level at a company that makes the blades. I wouldn't say like I know directly the the person who created the one specific product, except for in, in one in one outlying case. But the like the people who create the blades have done extensive research on this sort of stuff, and I'm I'm almost like late to the game in a sense because all the guys who are above me and ahead of me and faster than me and jump farther than me, which won't be very many soon enough, but the top dog are all on the best technology right now, and so I'm sort of emulating emulating a technology that they have and and fitting it to my personal needs. So I wouldn't say there's much discourse between me and, and, and the person who specifically designed the blades, but there is extensive research done. And, you know, I play around with it. I see which one I like more. And it's, it's definitely personal preference to some extent. You know, as you were talking, I was listening to you describe the kind of complexity of the blades and what they provide versus the leg you had as a kid. Yes. I'm wondering, do you think that these kinds of technological changes and innovations reflect anything at all about how we as a culture are thinking about disability? That's a good question. I think that the technological advances that we are having is definitely good for the movement because it's sometimes crazy to me to think that, and it's, it's a, in a cool way, to think that there's people who have dedicated their lives to making a blade that allows these athletes, allows me to be the fastest that I can be. So I don't know. I, I do think that it's, it's definitely a step in the right direction and, and the more you know the more publicity that these athletes get for being faster and all that sort of stuff and the more the blade can and the technology continues to excel and improve it's only going to further the movement make this stuff you know so much more interesting and make these athletes faster and then we're all going to you know figure that so i think i think to some extent it does just because it's it's super cool
cool to see people who are dedicated their lives to making a piece of technology that has to work with the human body to become as fast or, you know, do certain things to the best of its ability. As you were talking there, what I was thinking is that the leg you had as a child, it seemed to me the theory behind developing something like that as a piece of technology is how can we give some functionality, but mostly give the semblance of a leg. And in the context of blades, the theory seems to be how can we allow people with disabilities to participate at the highest level, not just to have something that's, that resembles a human leg, but something that actually allows for excellence? Yeah, I, I actually agree with that. That's a very good point. Because I feel like, you know, when I was a little kid and I got those little prosthetics, those were more for, you know, getting around the house, just, you know, being a, a four and five-year-old. What, what else four and five-year-olds aren't trying to sprint and win medals medals at the Olympics and Paralympics. They're just, you know, having fun at recess with their friends and, you know, drawing on whatever pieces of paper with their, you know, that's, that's what they do. And so I do agree with you for sure that it's, it's definitely a, a cultural adjustment because I, I think it's made a big impact on the whole Paralympic world as the technology improves. I wanted to go back to something that you said as you were watching these elite Paralympian athletes run with blades. And I wanted to ask you this question because there's been an ongoing debate about running blades ever since they were introduced into competitive sports. The research around this has shown that those who study blade prostheses disagree fiercely over the net impact of these pros and cons on overall performance. Memorably, in 2008, the International Association of Athletics Federations, or IAAF, banned Oscar Pistorius in 2008 from competing in track and field events because they claimed the blades gave him an unfair advantage. In another case, Marcus Rehm, whose lower right leg was severely damaged by a boat propeller when he was a teenager, won the German national long jump title in 2014. Officials from Germany's track and field governing body later barred him from competing in the 2014 European Championships in Zurich due to concerns that his blade was creating an unfair advantage. In 2015, as Reem sought another way to compete in mainstream events, the IAAF changed the rules, requiring amputee athletes to, to prove that a prosthesis does not give them an edge. What's your thinking on that debate? See, I, I love this debate, but I also hate it at the exact same time because it's ridiculously complex. And there isn't one simple concrete answer that, you know, you can just say that applies universally to every athlete with a blade. I think it depends on the blade. It depends on the disability. It depends on the the place of amputation. Because for me specifically, if someone were to tell me that my blade right now in the leg that I'm running on is better than an able-bodied leg or an able-bodied foot, I would tell them they are absolutely the most foolish person I've ever met in my entire life because I don't have a knee. I'm not a below the knee amputee. I don't even have control over the bottom part of my leg. I move the top part in hopes that I direct the bottom part in the correct placement, but I don't have control over the bottom part. So that argument to an above the knee amputee is honestly foolish and doesn't make any sense because they don't have enough body parts to even be compared to an able-bodied person, especially since the blade is so difficult to control. And then once you get into the double amputees who are below the knees, where they have control over the lower part of their leg, and it's strictly, the evidence is strictly relying on, is a blade returning more energy than an actual foot? My personal opinion 
I obviously am not backed up right now by tons of evidence of science, but I I think it depends on the blade. But I do think that it's been proven that it really doesn't. It doesn't provide the same amount of energy return that you get from having muscles, tendons, ligaments, your your calf, your quad, your head, all that sort of stuff that is extremely underdeveloped in a leg that isn't really there is not it's the, the muscles that you get in your foot and your it is just doesn't compare to a blade and on top of that i think that if that was the case if people who ran on blades were were getting more energy return and are cheating compared to the able-bodied athletes why don't they hold all the world records why aren't they why aren't these athletes who train at the top of their craft. I work so hard to even be remotely close or above the average, right, able-bodied person or to be jump higher or run faster. Why don't these athletes with blades then have all the world records? And why has there only been really two track and field athletes ever, or maybe even three, including uh, Blake Leeper from the United States, to ever reach that point of transcending the plane of disability and competing against the able-bodied athletes? Because if it was really cheating, if it was really advantage, then you would have hundreds, you would have all these athletes, you would from all across the world be destroying the able-bodied people. And then you could say, okay, maybe that makes sense. Why is there, why are these people with physical disabilities just destroying the world record by all these times? But that's not the case. Oscar Pistorius is the outlier, the greatest, right, of, of that sort of category. So if these, this is really cheating and these blades were really this unfair advantage that these people seem to claim that it is, then where are all the world records? Why aren't they beating all these able-bodied athletes? And so I don't like love getting into arguments with people who just don't understand because you can't formulate an opinion on something unless you truly understand the complexities of the blade, the complexities of a disability type, of a point where the amputation happened. So with all that coming into into play, I think it's very difficult for someone for the you know the general public to make a claim and then people just run with it, which is what ends up happening a lot of the time. But I I do not think that it's it's an unfair advantage. Maybe down the future, maybe 10, 15 years, there's this one blade or something, or there's this super like technology thing, right? Or whatever that does some crazy thing. But like as of right now, the blades that these people are running on and jumping on, it doesn't just like propel the person forward. It takes immense amount of force, power, muscle exertion into the blade and the correct placement of it on the ground and the correct alignment with the knee and the center of gravity to even create a force that's not even nearly equal to that of an able-bodied leg. And so when you look at it like that and you really understand it, it's not an advantage at all. I mean, as you're talking, it makes me wonder whether or not these debates are really even about the physics of it. It reminds me a little bit about of the debates that are currently happening in Congress right now about whether or not transgender athletes can participate in, you know, high school sports or transgender women can participate in women's sports. I mean, the truth is that there's not a lot of transgender women. I actually don't know of any transgender women that have been reported back that want to participate in these sports, which means that the conversation is not actually about real people. It's about something else. Do you have a theory about what this debate is actually about if it's not about the people who are participating and their actual physical qualifications or needs? I think I think this debate stems with the discrimination of people with physical disabilities. That's where I truly think it stems from. Because at the end of the day, if you look at the science, if you look at the actual evidence of this sort of stuff, a blade is not an advantage. But as far as, you know, in Oscar Pistorius' case, 
and Marcus Rem case and, and all these cases where athletes are being denied competition to compete against the able-bodied athletes. I think it just stems from a little bit of discrimination against people with physical disabilities and not wanting to admit, not wanting to admit that the, the, the guy with one leg is actually athletic enough and fast enough and talented enough to compete at that level. We saw it with Oscar. He got denied, right? They said it, they said the blades are an advantage. He formulated his own evidence, proved that it wasn't. I don't think Marcus Rem has, has been able to gather the funds to, to, to fund the same type of research that Oscar was to be able to create that sort of case for himself. But then again, I don't know enough about the situation or, or Marcus Rem's situation in specific. But I do think that there's there's some form of discrimination that, that that lies within these people, but the general public who just forms a who forms an opinion on a situation that they know absolutely nothing about, which tends to happen a lot in our society where people don't do the due diligence of, of doing the research and taking the time to truly understand the complexities of a certain situation and then formulate an opinion and act as if they already know everything about it. And so when I hear people talk and already you know, go back and forth with me and I get countless DMs, hundreds of DMs of people telling me I'm cheating, people telling me I don't, of all, people telling me I jump off a spring, people telling me all sorts of stuff like that. And at the end of the day, it's funny to me, you know, the people who DM me and stuff like that, I'm like, you don't understand. If you were in my position and you saw everything and I could g explain it to you, then you would understand and you can have your own opinion about it then. But without understanding, like half these people are like, you know, oh, he's jumping off a spring. It's all me. Are you going to go farther? I'm like, but I don't, I don't have a knee. I don't have a knee to even load the spring. I'm loading it from a standing position and I'm having to dig my hamstring that I don't even have into the into a leg that I don't even have to get that spring. So when people come to me with stuff like that and have this, it's, I think it's rooted in a little bit of discrimination. There's, I think, three categories that I'd be interested to hear you expand on. Because the first category, it seems like, is broadly speaking, I'll call them the Twitterati. People who are not experts, but are pretty sure that they know. And then there are people who have the experiential evidence. In other words, it is an experience that they've had in their bodies. And so you have a certain knowledge base there. And then you have scientific evidence. And I'm wondering, you know, I think I can dismiss the first category as probably not being able to be qualified to have a say in this. But I wonder if you could speak a little bit to the relationship between, on the one hand, the evidence of living in a body and having experiences and being able to talk to whether or not this is a body advantage to have a blade versus the scientists who are looking at the data. Do you think that there is a way that these two categories of expertise that might be sometimes in dispute with one another talk to one another? Or how do we decide what's right if the data says one thing and the experience says another? I think at the end of the day, you cannot rely on someone's experience for actual proof that it doesn't provide an advantage because one person could have a different feeling than the other person and it's not completely equal and who is able like the, the, and then you get it gets foggy when you're someone's talking about what they felt another person talking about what they felt so i can explain to someone why i feel i don't have an advantage but without providing the correct evidence and actually explaining and giving reasons why that are just that are outside my feeling, they are general facts of having a prosthetic leg, then that's where I think the, the strides are made. And that's where I think the, the ground will be broken is when, you know, Oscar provided the evidence. He showed them. He said he gave them all the evidence they need that he doesn't have an advantage. And, you know, if it gets to the point where I'm competing against able-bodied athletes because I've gone fast enough and I need to provide the evidence, I will do so. But logically, if you look at the situation logically, 
where are all the world record holders with amputations running on these blades? Why aren't they beating every single able-bodied person? Why has there been so few to do it? So if you look at this logically, it's one thing, but I do think there's a chance for, for people who have an experience versus people who are just looking at the facts and looking at the data. Because like my, my dad, my coach, my family, my friends, people who are around me, people have seen me, people who I come and encounter with, people, my prosthetist, you know, my physical therapist, my whole team, they understand. Like if you were to ask them this same question, they would have the exact same response as me. Hell no, he doesn't have an advantage. What would what, what even, you know, what kind of, of course he doesn't have an advantage. Like the kid, like if that was really the case, then they would say the exact same thing as me. And so I think it doesn't necessarily have to rely on personal experience because there's people who don't, my dad will never know what it's like to have one leg. My coach will never know what it's like to have a prosthetic leg, but they can empathize enough and they can look at this and assess a situation logically enough to realize that I don't have an advantage and a, a blade does not provide the same, the same type of, it doesn't have provide that advantage that everybody talks about. Ezra, a large number of technologists, engineers, scientists, or folks who intend to go into medicine, STEM, broadly speaking, listen to this podcast, and many of them represent the next generation of tech workers. They'll go into designing buildings and cities, indoor and outdoor spaces, objects that we'll use on a daily basis, transformative forms of new technologies. One of the principles I try and teach in my class on ethical technology is empathic, inclusive, and equitable design, making sure that the people in charge of imagining, creating, and producing the technologies that they'll go on to produce have the ability and the thoughtfulness to design with the diversity of perspectives, bodies, and experiences. What would you want them to know as they start their careers imagining, designing, and building our future realities? I would like them to know how much anything that is accessible and anything that is disability friendly, how much this, the disabled community truly appreciates that. Because I, back in four years ago, I broke my femur and I was stuck in a wheelchair and I never understood how the world was so unaccessible. Like I never understood in the same way until I was in the position. So I was in a wheelchair for three months. So I was able to experience what these, what a lot of my, a lot of my friends, a lot of people that I know who are in wheelchairs experience on a daily basis. I couldn't get into my own house without help. I couldn't get into my own car, get into my own car. I couldn't get up the stairs to get into class. There were so many things that were so difficult to do. I could I had a difficult time holding things and holding my books while I was pushing a wheelchair. It was a complete mess. And I gained a newfound respect for people who have to deal with that on an everyday basis. So for me personally, I was put in that position that we just talked about where the person the outside, the outsider perspective versus the person actually experiencing it. I was the outside perspective and I didn't even notice the amount of inaccessibility there is in our world. Versus when I, then I was in it for a short period of time. And I was like, oh my God, my eyes were completely open. So any strides that we're making with accessibility and, you know, all these new laws talking about like the, it, there has to be a wheelchair ramp, like that stuff means a lot because the disability community is not appreciated. They're not cared for outside of the few organizations that do lots of amazing work. And so when we see something like that happen, when we hear about a new law or, you know, someone comes out with a new, whatever it might be, or just even a really cool modern building that's completely wheelchair accessible. That stuff is what truly makes an impact. And we truly appreciate it because there's not many people out there who are thinking like that. And so when someone does, and someone does do something that impacts the, the adaptive community in, in that type of way, truly means a lot. So to everyone listening, to anyone who has created accessible buildings from the bottom of my heart, thank you for, for including us and making us not feel like outsiders in, in society. Because it, it, it for the people who feel like outsiders everywhere they go, to walk into a really cool, 
school, you know, whether it be a building, whether it be even just getting into class and there's a wheelchair ramp there that's designed so that they can get to class the same way an able-bodied person can, that's the stuff that means the most. A defining movement of our times is the movement toward diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI. How have you experienced this cultural moment of DEI? Personally, I mean, you know, I talk about it a lot, but, you know, growing up with a physical disability, I I was the only kid in my school with one leg. I was the only kid everywhere I went. I was the, the diverse kid at my school. There was not very many people with physical disabilities. And I think I was lucky because I was able to sort of squeeze into the mainstream sports that was going on. I was able to compete right, on the same level as my peers and, and in some cases, you know, excel. But I think for people with physical disabilities, like someone in a wheelchair can't pull up to the YMCA and play wheelchair basketball against guys who are standing up. That's just not how it works. And so I'm super grateful, you know, for our organization, everything that we're doing to, to make adaptive sports more accessible because, you know, that inclusion part, right, of the DEI is something that's really lacking. And it's, and, and that's what, you know, Angel City Sports and our organization does is we, we bring, you know, we include everybody. There's always adaptive ways to do stuff. You know, there's always different ways to figure something out. If I, I, I literally watched a guy shoot an archery bow and he didn't have his hands. So he pulled it back with his feet and another guy who did it with his mouth. Like that's the type of stuff that, that happens in this adaptive sports community. And so for me, I'm lucky I've been able to sort of sneak in and then into this sort of, you know, mainstream sports stuff that I've been doing. And I haven't had much issue as I got older with any bullying or making fun of or stuff like that. But for many athletes, for the majority of athletes, not even just athletes, majority of people with physical disabilities, you know, across the nation, across the world, that is not the case. And so I think with the work of our organization, you know, the work of, of people like yourself the, who, are, who are trying to normalize disability and normalize being different because they th at the end of the day, like we're all different in our own ways is, is something truly special. And I'm, I'm super excited for this movement to grow exponentially as time goes on. But, you know, for me personally, I've been able to participate in many mainstream sports and, but I'm grateful for the organizations that allow for people with disabilities who can't compete in that same way to have some sort of inclusion. Before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about intersectionality, which is a term frequently used in the context of DEI. Intersectionality, just very briefly, is the idea that a person's social and political identities, gender, race, class, etc., combine to create different modes of discrimination and privilege, and that different groups of historically underrepresented groups or groups that have historically experienced discrimination can productively come together to fight oppression or to fight that kind of misrepresentation or underrepresentation. How do you experience the movement toward intersectionality, if at all? Is that a term that you've heard before, thought about? That was not, that was not a term that I heard bef before this podcast, but I do think people with physical disabilities historically have had, you know, a major issue being discriminated against. We talked about it, you know, with the whole movement and how it's really difficult to prove that the blade isn't an advantage. But how have I, in the or personally in the disability community, experienced the movement towards intersectionality? I think it just stems, you know, through the community that we've built and through the organization that, you know, me and my family have created within Angel City Sports. We're continuing to, to break down those barriers. We're continuing to change the narratives and change people's perspectives on those with physical disabilities. And so I've, I've been able to experience the movement, not only through myself, not only through seeing people's eyes be opened and, and seeing people you know, become uh, awakened to this, this amazing community of athletes and amazing community of people with physical disabilities in general, not just athletes, but anyone with disabilities, exceptional, you know, what they go through. And so I've been able to experience it, you know, personally, 
you know, by seeing, seeing uh, someone who I've changed their perspective and a dad at a, at a basketball game that says, oh my gosh, like, wow, like much respect, man, you're a really good basketball player. And despite your disability and all that sort of stuff, or, or even my, my track coach who just treats me like a, a, a normal kid and, and makes me work even harder than the, the able-bodied athletes on my team. Or it's, you know, through our organization where I'm able to see it, all these people who these, all these celebrities come together to support this, this, this community and which who bring attention to a movement that hasn't had much attention otherwise. And so I'm able to experience it through myself firsthand, which is absolutely amazing. But I'm also able to, you know, experience it through other athletes who have come to this community for the first time and through our organization. So I, I personally am, am grateful for, for the entire movement, and everything that's come because of it. And I'm super excited for everything that is to come because I truly think that this movement is something special. And at the end of the day, my biggest goal is to show people that someone with a physical disability should not be overlooked in this in, in the way that we have in the past. So I'm very grateful for everything that, that we've done with Angel City Sports, with the organization, and I'm very excited for all that's to come. Thank you, Ezra. Thank you. Thank you for having me.